Please remain standing for our special prayer for today, recognizing that Christ is King. As we pray that he might rule, a moment to reflect where we want him to be in charge. Eternal Father, whose Son Jesus Christ ascended to the throne in heaven, that he might rule over all things as Lord and King. Keep the church in the unity of the Spirit and in the bond of peace, and bring the whole created order to worship at his feet, who is alive and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. We sit for our first reading. Our first uh, reading is taken from Ephesians chapter 1, beginning at verse 15. Paul's prayer. I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints and for this reason I do not cease to give thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ the Father of glory may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation as you come to know him so that with the eyes of your heart enlightened, you may perceive what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance among the saints? What is the immeasurable greatness of his power for us who believe according to the working of his great power. God put this power to work in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name, that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he has put all things under his feet and has made him the head over all things for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the word of the Lord. Please stand for the gospel. Hallelujah, hallelujah. You, Christ, are the King of glory, the eternal Son of the Father. Hallelujah. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. The judgment of the nations. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. 
all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate one from another as shepherds separate the sheep from the goats and he will put the sheep at his right hand and the goats at the left. Then the king will say to those at his right hand, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? And the king will answer them, Truly, I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it to me. Then he will say to those at his left hand, You who are accursed, depart from me into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not give me clothing. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry, or thirsty, or stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, Truly, I tell you, just as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Lord, may my words and all our thoughts lead us to know more of you. Amen. In 2009, some buses in London and in some other parts of the country carried a big advert down the side which said, there's probably no God, now stop worrying and enjoy your life. It was funded by some well-known atheists and by the British Humanist Society. And that's how many people like to think. As the author Francis Spufford wrote, for some well-to-do Westerners living a troubled free life with perhaps not much thought for other people, it might be comforting 
to think that there may be no one to hold them to account for their selfishness. But for billions of people in this world who cry out for justice and fairness, it would be a terrible thing to think that there was no God. People want there to be someone who holds the final accounts. The psalmist, you read the psalms and you often see a longing for justice. In Psalm 40 we read, As for the heads of those who surround me, let their mischief of their lips overwhelm them. Let burning coals fall upon them. Let they be cast into the fire, into the miry pits, no more to rise. Let not the slanderer be established in the land. Let evil hunt down the violent men speedily. He says, I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and will execute justice for the needy. The comfortably off atheist might like to think there's no God to hold them to account. But for many of us, the idea that God will ultimately put things right, equalize the books, is a more comforting thought. And today, it's the end of the church's year, and we celebrate the feast of Christ the King. The King who comes, as we just read, in judgment. The Christian year starts with a promise of a coming king. It goes through the birth in humility of that king. It sees Jesus, the king, teaching about the kingdom, demonstrating its power before he is made king in an unusual way, wearing a crown of thorns, enthroned on a cross. And then he's raised and ascended into heaven And then we spend a long time thinking about pictures of the kingdom before we get to this point of remembering that Christ is enthroned as king and will come back and we look forward to his return in triumph. Matthew 25 that we just had read talks about the Son of Man returning with the angels. The Son of Man, of course, was Jesus' favorite term for himself. Perhaps looking back to Daniel chapter 7 where one like a son of man is given authority and power and an everlasting kingdom. In this passage that we read, Jesus says that when he, the son of man, returns, there will be judgment. The king will judge. This passage that we read is sometimes referred to as the parable of the sheep and the goats. But it's not really a parable. It's not like the other parables earlier on in the chapter where Jesus says the kingdom of God is like. We don't get that here because it's not so much a parable as a promise. This is what's going to happen. Jesus, on his glorious throne sits with all the nations gathered before him. The phrase that's used for the nations in the New Testament, it's both used for all of the world 
and all of the people who were not in God's people. The Gentiles, as Jews would say. But all these people, they're in front of God, in front of Jesus, the King, and they're separated the same way that a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Because in those days, sheep and goats would be herded together. It's better use of the land, because the sheep and the goats eat different kind of grass. So you have them all together. Uh, but sometimes you need to separate them out. And that's what it's like. These people who've all been together, the king will separate them. Some will go into God's eternal kingdom, and some won't. So what's the basis of the separation? How does he judge? What's the entry requirement? The religious teachers in Jesus' day thought that the entry requirement was that you were one of Abraham's children, you were born in the right race. Or that you observed all the religious rules, you kept the law in all the little ways that they devised. But that's not what Jesus says. It's not about your birth. It's not about the little religious rules you've kept. It depends entirely on how people treat the least of those who are members of my family, as it was in the, uh, the NRSV, or the least of these my brethren in the older versions. So who's he talking about there? Who are the least of his brethren? Well, the members of Jesus' family are his followers. Do you remember the episode at the beginning of Jesus' ministry when his mother and brothers came looking for him? One said to him, Look, your mother and brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with you. But Jesus answered and said to the one who told him, Who is my brother and my... said to them, Who is my brother and my mother? And he stretched out his hand towards his disciples and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. The least of these, my brethren, says Jesus, the least of my family, the least of my disciples. The passage is often seen as Jesus judging on the basis of doing good or evil to anyone in need. But there is a specific interest here in his family the family of believers Jesus earlier on in the last couple of chapters has been talking about the end times and times will be tough after Jesus leaves for his disciples as they are for many Christian believers today and Jesus encourages by saying, well, it depends how people help you, how they will be judged. Helping or neglecting them, hungry and suffering Christians, is like helping or neglecting Jesus. Do you remember when Saul was riding his, to, towards Damascus? What did Jesus say when he knocked him off his mount? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
Because persecuting Christians that Saul was doing was like persecuting Jesus. He so identifies with his followers. So in this judgment in chapter 25 of Matthew, the Son of Man is looking at at those around and says, did you help these Christians in prison, in hunger, in wants, in persecution? Because if you're on their side, you're on my side. So it's not so much an interesting parable, it's a promise to his disciples. There will be justice. He's reassuring them that he's going to come again and bring his kingdom in all its fullness. And people will be asked how they treated them. So is that okay then? Can I say I'm a believer in Jesus? I'm saved by faith, so I don't have to worry about that judgment. Well, I'm reminded that the Apostle James, in his, in his letter, corrects that thinking. He writes, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm and be well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good's that? In the same way, faith by itself if not accompanied by action, is dead. So faith in Jesus results in good deed, results in looking after those in need. And Paul tells the church in Galatia, let's not grow weary in doing what is right, for we will reap at the harvest time if we do not give up. So then whenever we have an opportunity, let us work for the good of all, and especially for those in the family of faith. If we have that faith in Jesus, if we've got that trust in Jesus as our Lord and Saviour, it will result, one hopes, in those actions of goodness, especially, says Paul, to the, pe- to the family of faith. Is our faith seen in care for those in need, especially the members of Jesus' family, and particularly the least of Jesus' brothers and sisters. It's all right sharing with Christians like us, with our friends, but what about those Christians who are in prison, or who are hungry, or who are thirsty? Those especially in need. And there are Christians like that around the world and in our midst. I've recently heard from someone of a Palestinian Christian heritage talking about the helpless feeling of knowing that some members of her family were sheltering in the basement of a church in Gaza, too scared to even step outside. There members of Jesus' family, caught up in a war between Muslim fundamentalists and the IDF. Who's going to help them? A friend of mine, a retired vicar, used to regularly visit 
in prison, in prisons all over the place. He had to go miles to go and visit someone who had been a member of his congregation and who had been convicted of uh, a paedophile offence. Everybody else disowned this man. But my friend went to visit him because he was, in most people's eyes, the least of Jesus' followers. And are there lonely people who don't get to church, who don't actually participate in everything because they can't, who would like a visit or a bit of help, who takes us out of our way? Or even more difficult, are there people, Christian brothers and sisters, who we find it difficult to get on with? Or they're just a bit awkward people and it's so easy to ignore them. And Jesus says, whatever you did for the least of these, my brethren, you did for me. Or the hungry and suffering and imprisoned and persecuted Christians around the world that you might not be able to visit in person, but perhaps we could help in prayer and giving. There are lots of charities doing that. So the end of time, Jesus stands with all these people before him and he looks and he separates them like a shepherd with a sheep. And the basis is, what did you do for the least of my people? Because that's what you did for me. Faith in Jesus results in acts of love, especially towards his people. And receiving Jesus involves accepting even the least of his family. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you so identify with your household of faith. Help us to see how we can help you by helping the least of your people. Amen.